Sometimes we can get very discouraged by the world around us. We see chaos and turmoil and it's like the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And many are filled with anxiety and despair. Many are worried about what the future is going to have. And we see in our passage today that we're going to see a whole bunch of the descendants of Abraham turning away over the course of centuries from the truth of God. It's going to make anyone feel pessimistic about the future when you see that it's more common for humanity to turn away from the truth than to embrace the truth. And we seem to be rebellious by nature. That just seems to be the way that human beings are. And so how as Christians, how we as believers can have optimism for the future when the natural state of humanity is to move away from God. And the thing that gives us optimism, the thing that gives us hope is that God is mighty to save despite our rebellion, that our rebellion does not have the last say, that his kingdom prevails and our defiance will not stand for all eternity, but God's love and grace will stand. And so we're going to be reading our entire passage for today, all in one big chunk. It's a bit of a shorter passage, Genesis 21. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 18. So please read along with me. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahairoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetu, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed these last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. We start by seeing Abraham marrying another woman after Sarah has died. Now, he's already quite old when Sarah has died, and age, we know, doesn't actually prohibit someone from remarrying. If your spouse passes away, you are permitted, according to the law, to, to marry, according to the Bible, to marry. And while Abraham technically could remarry, which is what he does here, I still think it, I still think it was a foolish decision. It wasn't a wise decision. It wasn't a technically wrong decision. There was nothing wrong with it. 
but ultimately it did prove to be a foolish decision because Sarah, um, we see that uh, Sarah had died. We see that Isaac was remarried and now Abraham is alone. And so his son's married, his wife is dead and he remarries Keturah. And we don't know much about Keturah. We know that she's considered a concubine in verse 6, which indicates that she wasn't a free woman when Abraham married her. Matthew Henry suggests that she was the chief of Abraham's maidservants and probably born into his camp and was the most influential woman within the camp. And this is something I also think is highly likely. Um, I think this is most likely to be the case. But why did Abraham remarry? Sarah was the love of his life. Sarah, the the death of Sarah had a huge impact on him, we saw from the other week. Perhaps it was loneliness that caused him to remarry. Perhaps he wanted someone to look after him because after all, he was very old and advanced in years. And yet Paul speaks of Abraham in the book of Romans as his body being as good as dead before the birth of Isaac. And here he is having six more sons after Isaac. So what's going on? How is Abraham able to have all these sons in his old age. Well, the promise God made to him concerning Isaac, this miracle that God worked within Abraham and Sarah's body in order to make them uh, capable of having children, obviously this miracle wasn't just a one-off, once-in-a-lifetime situation where it worked, and then after that, nothing else seemed to work. Well, no, that wasn't the case. Um, Abraham's body was reinvigorated. His body, uh, a miraculous work worked within him, and it seemed to have lasted quite a lot longer than was needed for Isaac. Uh, God had promised to bless Abraham and to greatly multiply him. And children are indeed a blessing to their parents. And uh, I'm sure Abraham valued all his sons as much as he valued Ishmael, as much as he valued Isaac. But Isaac was the son of the promise. But Abraham is in a unique situation. Because due to the promise, everything Abraham owns must go to Isaac. And because it has to go to Isaac, that means that the rest of the sons are not going to receive an inheritance. And immediately you can see why remarrying and having more children can lead to problems. And this is why it's an unwise situation to be in. It's a unique, specific situation to Abraham. If you remarry old in life and you have children older in life, there can be wisdom calls within that, but it is permitted and Abraham is permitted to do this. But these sons aren't going to inherit anything substantial. They receive gifts, including Ishmael. So as Abraham's heading off in life and he knows that he's about to die and Isaac's about to inherit everything, he sends gifts to all his sons, including Ishmael, because he's included in the sons of his concubines. But they don't get anything worthwhile. They're second-rate sons. They're sons that are born to slaves, not sons that are born to the free woman. And it wasn't, I think, wise for Abraham to remarry. And because of this, he had to send all seven sons away to the East Country. We've already seen him sending Ishmael away in chapter 21. And now we're seeing him send the rest of his sons off to live with Ishmael and Ishmael's sons. And so they're going to form a cultural identity together. They're going to form a whole set of tribes. And we're going to see that these tribes are constantly warring with each other. These tribes are constantly uh, creating havoc and issues. And this would have long lasting effects on the lineage of the promise. And Abraham lives a long life. 
175 years. The text says in a good old age, he passed away. And I'd have to agree. 175 is, uh, well, that's, if that doesn't qualify you for having a bit, dying at a good old age, I'm not sure what will. And he's an old man full of years and God had sustained and protected him throughout his whole life. He's rescued him from danger. He's given him victory in battle. He's protected him from foreign kings. He's blessed him at every single turn. And now he's going to be buried at Machpelah with his wife, Sarah. Remember him purchasing this uh, bit of land. The text makes sure that we know he bought it. It's his. It's his for forever. His body still resides there to this very day. Abraham and Sarah, whatever remains of their body, even if it's uh, uh, very limited. And notice that Abraham's life, even though he faced so much, uh, he was blessed, but he faced so much adversity. Uh, We see his life full of hardships and sorrow and trials. He makes foolish decisions that cost him dearly and set in motion ripples that go all the way through history, even to this very day. Seemingly small decisions to Abraham have massive historical effects. And Abraham is a very human character, just like the rest of us. And this is why we should be encouraged, because we shouldn't become weary and battle-scarred in our journey, expecting a better lot in life or expecting a better story, because even our heroes in the faith made blunders, they had serious shortcomings, and we are privileged to learn from these men and to see the stories of these men and women throughout the entire Bible and to learn from their example, whether good or ill. And for Abraham, there are so many good things to take from this man's life and something new is happening in his life from God. But also sin is always lurking at the door and its mastery is to have us. And so sin is always threatening to steal and rob us of our legacy, to steal and rob us of our faith, to steal away from us our hope. But Abraham pushed on. God promised to be with him. And he promises to be with us. He promises to care and provide for our needs. And he provided and cared for Abraham. And he'll bless our obedience. And not merely through material wealth and gain. Sometimes that happens, but we should not be expecting that. The Bible is very clear that wealth and gain do indeed come from the Lord, but they are not always how God blesses us. In fact, we should not be focusing on that because our treasure should be in heaven. But God blesses our obedience and he gives us fruit and he grows us into maturity. He gives us joy, peace, and ultimately the gift of eternal life. But unlike Abraham, we have a much greater advantage than him. We have the Holy Spirit. Have a listen to Romans 8, 12 to 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Although we are humans, just like Abraham, we are not debtors to the flesh. The flesh has no mastery over us. The flesh does not control us. You do not have to sin. Sin still resides. It still crouches at the door, but we do not have to sin. Our sinful nature, our sinful desires no longer have to be the thing that rules the day, but rather the spirit at work in our lives, helping us to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In fact, only those who have the spirit of God are the children of God. 
If in fact, if indeed you do have the Spirit of Christ, what you need is you need Christ's Spirit indwelling within you, helping you so that when you get to that good old age or you die young, because we're not promised length of days, but we are promised eternal days. And if you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit received as a gift by faith and grace, you will conquer you will be redeemed. You will have hope in this next life. And just like Abraham, you will be a member of God's household. And we see Abraham had many sons. Often we think of Abraham only having Ishmael and Isaac, and those are the two sons that we hear of a lot. But his other sons actually do show up quite often in the Bible. And it's quite a shame that we don't hear about these sons because they play important roles. And the text noticed something significant about who buries Abraham, and it's Ishmael and Isaac. Now, these two brothers were like polar opposite. These two brothers had animosity and hostility between them. There was a serious breakdown in communication between their mothers. And because their mothers clashed so much, it caused the sons to carry on those grudges and to carry on those things. But often it takes the death of a close loved one to bring family members who are warring back together. And these two brothers have been at odds. There was jealousy and envy and familial conflict. There was a position of hostility. And Ishmael had never forgiven Sarah for the way that she had treated his mother Hagar. But Abraham, and this is credit to Abraham, he loved both of his sons. And it was obvious if you were tracking with us as we're reading Genesis, how much Abraham loved Ishmael and how much he, it broke his heart that he had to send Ishmael away. And I'm sure it breaks his heart that he has to send these other six sons away. But whatever their differences, Isaac and Ishmael put them to the sides to honor their father. Because as far as Abraham making a mess of things, he was still honored and respected by his sons. His sons still loved him. He was still, as far as human fathers go, he was a good father. Now I want to pause for a section, a second, on the sons of Abraham and Ishmael. Because they are quite linked together. Because they're both sent into the East Country, and because their descendants live amongst themselves, they begin to form a common culture and common thread. They dwell in the East Country. They're considered to be the fathers of the Arabian peoples, the um, uh, alternative sons of Abraham. And big important names in the flow of biblical history show up. I'm just going to point out a few of them for you. Midian. You may have heard of Midian if you've read your Bible. Sheba. Might have reminded you of the Queen of Sheba. Kedar, Nebaioth, Duma. What happened to all these men? What were these legacies of the sons of Abraham? Because they still carry the God of Abraham. They are still uh, brought up and catechized and trained into worship of the God of Abraham. They knew that the God of Abraham was the one true God. So were they going to follow the same path as Isaac? Were they going to follow the same path as the Israelites and continue the worship of the one true God? Or did they in fact walk away? What happened to Abraham's legacy? Well, if you guys have been, um, I guess, observant, you've noticed that I'm talking a lot about legacy as we're going through Genesis. 
and about what Abraham is going to be leaving to the next generation. And it seems that Abraham does, in fact, leave the worship of the one true living God to the next generation, and that they do indeed, to some limited extent, continue the practice of worshiping God. When Exodus comes around, we are introduced to Jethro, this guy, Moses' father-in-law, Exodus 3.1, have a listen. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this father-in-law of Moses, Jethro, is a Midianite. He is a descendant of one of the sons of Abraham, and he is a priest of God. He is here following and practicing the worship of God. He later lends aid to Moses and is genuinely helpful. Um, He's a helpful character in the book. Abraham's legacy of faith, it seems to continue for at least another 400 years. That's a huge amount of time. But before we start cheering too much for the Midianites, they quickly turn from heroes to villains. They end up being an enemy of Israel. They hire this guy named Balaam to curse the Israelites wandering in the desert in the book of Numbers. In Judges 6, the Midianites defeat Israel and subjugate the Israelites and treat them like slaves and rule them with an iron fist. And while some of the Midianites still believed in the worship of the one true living God, many of them walked away and worshipped other gods. Many of them turned to paganism. And this practice would actually come to define the descendants of both Keturah's sons and Hagar's sons, both Abraham's alternative sons and Ishmael's sons. And you can define these people. Their kind of identity is wrapped around, I would suggest, two words, traitors and raiders. They were merchants and bandits. This is how they're defined. We see later in Genesis 37, 28. Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, is going to get sold into slavery. And who purchases Joseph? Ishmaelites. They were slave traders. All throughout Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the names of these sons show up described as merchants and traders. There were so many of them that I, I, didn't, I, wasn't, able to get, I wasn't able to get through them. But they're also raiders and men of war. In Job 1, uh, 14 to 15, we see the Sabaeans. Now, you might not notice this, but the Sabaeans, that's the same as the people of Sheba. It's the same word, just uh, transliterated differently. It says in Job 1.14, it says, There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And this is what they were like. They were raiders. They rushed in and they stole livestock and they murdered people. Listen to how Isaiah 21, 16 to 17 speaks of the sons of Kedah. For thus said the Lord to me, for thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedah will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedah will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. They were violent. The identity of these people groups, their tribal identity, their cultural identity was one of violence and trade. And these nations slowly departed from the worship of God and they abandoned the God of their father Abraham and they went after other gods and they turned towards money and prosperity and violence and slave trading and they became a fierce, powerful people just as God had said about Ishmael. You may remember a long time ago that Ishmael 
had a prophecy. Genesis 16:12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And here we see that there is violence, that there's they're untamed, that they're warring with themselves. And although the sons of Keturah are not the sons of Ishmael, they're all living and rubbing shoulders in the East Country. And because of this, as they grow in wealth, naturally tensions begin to arise between these people groups. And they develop these tribal cultures centered around trading and raiding. And this really hasn't changed in this part of the world. Uh, We see the Queen of Sheba. You guys might know her, the Queen of Sheba. She travels to the temple in Jerusalem during the reign of King Solomon. And she gives praise to the temple. She sees the temple that Solomon has built to Yahweh. And she says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now you guys get the point by this. uh, You guys get the picture by this point, I'm sure. Now when you first read these names, it's likely that these are just a collection of names. The names of the sons, they mean nothing to you. They they fulfill no purposes. But the Bible is very deliberate with the names that it includes. And it includes these names because the names are important. And we might not know why they are important. But that's nothing to do with the Bible, and that's got a lot more to do with us. They're here for a reason. These men are significant. Their actions have abiding, long-lasting effects on this world. And they play a huge role in the history of Israel, even to this day. And so how did this happen? How did all the sons of Isaac, except for Isaac, uh, sorry, how, how did all the sons of Abraham, except Isaac, turn away from the worship of the one true God? Yes, as I said, there were sporadic communities of faith here and there amongst the people, but the nations largely abandoned God. And so what is going on? This is the natural state of humanity. Unbelief. Humanity naturally turns away from God. What do I mean? We aren't naturally followers of God. We naturally tend to slip away from God. As we read the story of Israel, we'll see over and over again, you see them falling away from God. You see them worshipping other things. And they are the ones um, with the, you know, you see the prophets, they have the prophets, they have the mighty works of God, they have the scriptures, and yet they still turn away because humans naturally drift away. Like a garden. If you do nothing with a garden, weeds pop up. Weeds pop up everywhere and they grow up and they create all sorts of issues. They steal the nutrients from the other plants and they generally make a ruckus. It's the same in a culture of faith. If there are no laborers in the field, the field will go to weeds and there will be no fruit. You won't get any fruit. There are no workers in the fields to bring in a harvest. Then there will be no fruit and a community of faith will evaporate. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Jesus is saying the harvest is there, 
The laborers are few. And so it is with any community. And as we look around us and we see the ruins of Christianity in our society, just like uh, the Israelites might look around, they'll see the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and the Sabaeans, and there are pockets of little bits of worship here and there, just like our culture, but largely the nation has abandoned the God of their forefathers. And the great work and harvest that was put to uh, was put out by Abraham has fallen away. Not many are willing to maintain and grow a community through evangelism and discipleship of our children. And this is how communities collapse. It's really those two things. A failure to reach out to the outside community with Jesus and a failure to reach out to our children with Jesus. And so what can we be doing? We have to rage against the tide. We have to fight for the kingdom of God in our local area. We must never let down our guard. There is nothing special about us that would stop us from going the same path as the Ishmaelites. There is nothing special about Australian society or Western society that would stop us from walking away from God just like the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and the uh, Sabaeans. Whoever they are, whoever we are, we are humans and we by nature slip away because our hearts are idle factories and we develop alternative gods at the drop of a hat. Sometimes it can feel hopeless. But by the grace of God, we can labor in the fields alongside the Lord of the harvest, Jesus himself. If you were Jethro, the high priest of Midian, you might have been despairing for your country and nation as they walked away from the worship of God and ended up becoming the enemies of Israel. You might have felt lost. Does human unbelief have the final say? Does our rebellion have the final say? For those individuals, yes. But for the nations, no. Check out this amazing passage in Isaiah 42, 10 to 12. It says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Isaiah is picturing a time when God would be gathering for himself a people from all over the world. The Israelites, when they saw the Mediterranean Sea, this huge great sea, that they didn't know how far it went or how much was over there. For them, that was where all the enemies of God were. That's where the Gentiles were, the people who didn't believe. And what we are seeing here in Isaiah is that they will come in. That these non believing nations will believe. And this is exactly what happened as the Roman Empire became a Christian nation and Christianity spread across all the world. But Isaiah does not forget Kedar, the son of Ishmael. Very interesting that he is mentioned by name. The Ishmaelites were in a desert. They were a constant threat. They were bitter enemies of Israel. They constantly led raiding parties in and took away livestock, took away uh, women and children, murdered the men. And these sons of Kedah, they lived in modern day Jordan and Saudi Arabia. 
And to this day, those countries are not believers in God. They're very hostile to Israel. It's the same as it always has been. But Isaiah 42 promises that one day God will gather for himself the descendants of Ishmael. That they will one day sing God's praises. And he's not done with the sons of Ishmael. In fact, he's not even done with the sons of Abraham by Keturah. Listen to Isaiah 60 verses 4 to 7. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams and the Baioth shall minister to you. And they shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedar, Nebaioth. All of these names, the sons of Abraham and the sons of Ishmael. Now, this is a promise as sure as anything. These peoples will come to God. The Ishmaelites and sons of Keturah will one day return to the Lord. And this is problematic, isn't it? The Arabic peoples are very much an Islamic people group. They are not Christians and they are not fond of Christians. In fact, if you convert from Islam to Christianity, that is a capital offense and you will lose your life. They've been very hostile to any Christian missionaries in their countries for centuries. And they've had a long lasting resistance to Christian mission efforts. And so how could these countries turn to Christ? Well, the hint is in verse six. It says that they shall bring gold and frankincense. And immediately, if you guys know the Christmas story, you will remember the gold and frankincense and myrrh that the Magi brought to Jesus. That they came bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh as if Jesus was a king in Matthew 2.11. And this was a foreshadow, a foretaste of what to come. It was a symbolic event pointing to a greater reality that one day this handful of Magi, as they bring their gifts to King Jesus, that one day all the nations will bring their wealth into the kingdom of God. And these were the first men to do that, but there would be more and that eventually it would encapsulate the whole world. And in particular, Isaiah is saying the whole world's going to come, but the sons of Ishmael will come. The sons of Ishmael will come. Jesus has many men and women that he will save from the Islamic world. He is still got great plans for them. He loves them, and one day he will call them into his kingdom. And so when will that happen? I believe it's happening right now. You see, in the Islamic world, something amazing is happening right under our very nose. Thousands of men and women are becoming Christians. Thousands of men and women are becoming Christians. More Muslims have become Christians in the 21st century alone than in the previous 14 centuries combined of Islamic existence. 
God is doing something amazing in the Islamic world. He's bringing many sons and daughters of Ishmael to true salvific faith in Jesus. And you can read these amazing stories that are happening over there. Yes, horrible stories, people being beheaded, people losing their lives, but people coming to faith in Jesus in droves. And Jesus showing up in dreams to thousands of people. It is absolutely amazing stuff that's happening over there. If you get an opportunity, I would recommend you look that stuff up because the stories are mind-blowing. The Holy Spirit is at work in these lands. And Jesus will have his people. And Isaiah 60 promises that the fullness of all the nations will come into the kingdom of God. So pray for the missionaries in the Middle East. Pray for their mission. Pray for their service. Pray that God would give them speed and that many will come to faith in Jesus. But more importantly, pray for here too. Because we need the Holy Spirit here too. We need God to pour out His mercy once again, here and now. We need God to raise up new leaders that can push forward the kingdom of God here in our country because we are moving further and further away from God's truth and it will bring more and more judgment. And what we need is God's mercy. And so pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers. And every time you pray that prayer and you pray for more people to come in, you say alongside that, here am I, send me. Send me into the field. Make me into a laborer. Help me work alongside the Lord of the harvest, Jesus himself. Because Jesus has won for himself a people through his shed blood on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. And his blood is powerful enough. It conquers all sin. He took that punishment that we would not have to die the eternal death. That that second death, death for eternity in hell, would have no power over us. That we will live in eternity with God in his kingdom in his world, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now and he is gathering people to him and people are streaming to him. And we can feel sorry for ourselves. We can feel like we're the Ishmaelites. We can feel like the kingdom is going further and further away from us or we can get back to where God has called us to be, to be laborers in his harvest. Hold fast to the promises of God. Hold fast to the promise to Abraham because through Abraham the nations will be blessed and last time I checked we were part of that promise we're part of the nations fight hard for the kingdom here work hard for the harvest here love God as you love uh, with all your heart soul strength and mind love your neighbor as you love yourself if we can get these things down pat if we can have real love in our church that we can move beyond ourselves and our selfishness and herald a new community and identity to this world and we can pray that the lord of harvest will send more laborers i have all the confidence in the promises of scripture that these things will take place we will see mighty works of god but while we're sitting on our bums sitting on our couches sitting at home in lockdown and not using that spare time for God's glory, we will not see mighty works of God. We will see weeds. We will see the devil prowling around like a lion. We will see sin come in and destroy our communities. And so my challenge is this. 
do you see yourself as a gardener? Do you prune off the things that don't bear fruit? Do you pull out the weeds by their roots? Or do you merely chop off their heads? There is a lot more to be said on this. But ponder deeply, meditate on these things, and pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers into the field, but more importantly, pray that he would send you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this word that we find in Genesis. Lord, I pray that my friends here would be encouraged, that they'd be mutually um, encouraged by each other's presence. Lord, would you continue to support our community even though we cannot meet anymore? And Father, I pray that that the lockdown would end soon and that all people would be able to meet and worship your, uh, your son Jesus with everyone, with the entire church. And Father, I pray that you would send more laborers into our harvest, that you would show us where the harvest is. Lord, you'd show us where the weeds are and show us how to pull them up by the roots. Would you help us to be gardeners for your kingdom and to work hard to bring and herald the message of Jesus and bring more men and women and save them from the judgment that is to come, but also, Lord, to save our children and to press further and harder into Um, their education and a distinct Christian culture. And Lord, that we would be a people marked by the love of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.